Good morning, everyone. Um, today, uh, I'm Faith Sweetser, and this is Grace Parody, and we're going to be reading the scripture for this morning. It's from, coming from John 6, one, verses 1 through 26. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would, worth, worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as they, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is, who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Thank you, ladies. I'll wait till they get a little further up the ramp before I embarrass them, because I know how teens are. But a couple of stellar young women in whom their parents are very proud, and we appreciate their participation this morning, yes? Uh, Back in 1984, when the world made much more sense to me, and I was learning how to moonwalk with my red leather zippered Michael Jackson jacket. Mom, you remember that? I think we found it like in Sears or in a catalog or something like that. She's embarrassed to admit that she let me wear it. But I was really cool in town, so you did your son's ego some, some favors there. But back in 1984, when that all made sense, Madonna famously sang, Some boys kiss me, some boys hug me, I think they're okay. If they don't give me proper credit, I just walk away. They can beg and they can plead, but they can't see the light. That's right. You guys remember the... Huh? Now the song's getting in your head. I'm doing you no favors today, am I? Because the boy with the cold hard cash is always Mr. Right. Because we're living in a material world and I am a material girl. Now I... I strive to be relevant, and I know Madonna is no longer relevant, no matter how hard she tries. But she has morphed herself into, you know, Britney Spears, who then became Lady Gaga, who's then become Cardi B, who's then become maybe Billie Eilish or somebody, you know, like, a, like the fixation character of the moment and stuff. And uh, she was just admitting to us what was on her heart and mind. 
And the culture made that very popular because it resonated with them. Now, trying to be relevant, I was looking for something a little bit more up-to-date instead of Madonna's 1984 lyrics. And I saw that The Weeknd, who's another you know, popular singer, had a song by the same name, Material Girl. And I read that and I said, I can't share a single line in church from that song. <laughs> so as a public service announcement, parents know what your kids are listening to. But it's The Weeknd. He's a great dancer. And just saying, just saying. But the admission of all mankind could be we're all material girls and guys. It's what we know. We've been talking about this since we started the series in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is ushering in a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, to people who have been born and remain obsessed with a physical kingdom, a fleshly kingdom. We're, we depend on it. We obsess over it. it. It's in our face every single day. Sometimes we could even say it's not really our fault. It is what we can see and we can smell and we can touch. It's all we've known. The problem that we run into, and this is why we struggle so hard to find lasting satisfaction, is that we were created to live in the kingdom that Jesus has come to introduce. Remember we said this back in John 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was living for good things. He was living for the law, and he was a a devout man to the good that can be available in the Lord. But he was doing it in a trapped, physical kingdom sort of way. It was his effort, it was the law, it was all that he could bring to it instead of what he could receive from Jesus. The kingdom we were created to live in is not material, but that is what we feel stuck in so many times. And the only way for you and I to break free from a material life is to be in relationship, personal relationship with the one who created life. Everything else, as we're discovering as we study this gospel together, everything else is sort of a poor imitation of the real life being offered to us. Even after describing all the things that he had accumulated that would add to anybody's resume in really glowing ways, the Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 3.10. All of that is rubbish. All of that is garbage. All the things that I've accumulated, it's all garbage. So he says, my pursuit is that I might know him, being Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. In fact, every act of Jesus demonstrated that he wants that personal relationship with us. He didn't come to be distant from us. He didn't come to lord it over us or to say, you'll never attain me. You'll never. He came so that he could communicate it to us, that he could deliver it to us so that by receiving it, we could have a personal relationship with him. The question so many of us ask, though, and probably even more need to ask as we take spiritual inventory is why are we blocked from just this simple pursuit of who is Jesus and, and, and how do I know him more? It seems so basic, doesn't it? I've told you before, it's like we preachers, we've just repackaged the same application, sermon after sermon after sermon, year after year, decade after decade. Read your Bible, pray more, do with what you're learning for the good of other people and it will bring God glory. I mean, the basics of this thing that we call Christianity, it's so simple. And yet we complicate it. We feel, we feel distant from it. We feel like something's always getting in the way. What is that something? And it's what Madonna was getting at. It's a material world and I'm a material girl. Now we're going to examine over the next several weeks the miracles that our young ladies just read to us out of John chapter six. And the two stories that they take place in with the feeding of the thousands of people that came to hear Jesus speak, and then the, the walking on water of Jesus to the, uh, to the disciples on the boat in the midst of the storm. Those things we're going to look at more closely over the next couple of weeks, but today we're going to be looking at these miracles from an overview perspective, or what would be our reaction to them If we were in the crowd, if we had witnessed what Jesus did with the bread, or if we had caught up to him on the other side of the sea, as we just heard about in John 6, where do we stand in the reaction of the crowd? And I think it's important for us to take this higher level view before we get into the specifics of the story, because you and I need to do business with what do we expect from Jesus? 
What are we looking for from this whole thing called Christianity? When we approach the scriptures, when we approach a church, when we approach somebody who's connected with the Lord, what are we looking for from them? And is that getting us into more trouble? Or is that leading us to a relationship with the one who's orchestrated this whole thing? I think it's interesting that we have these miracles are the only ones recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. We've been talking about how we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are covering things from a similar perspective with some varying details. And then the gospel of John comes several decades later and is looking at things just a little bit from another perspective. None of the details disagree with one another. It's just some authors emphasize certain things over others. But it's interesting that these are the miracles, the ones we're getting into here in John 6, these are the ones that every author wanted to include in their account. That should be telling us something. So we are going to take our time with them, but we're going to have to look in the mirror as we do it, which is not always easy. Sometimes we come as as borrowed listeners, you know, like I hope the person next to me hears what's being said, or why can't that person that needs to be here, why can't they be here? They're missing it. But instead, we need to be active and personal listeners and seeing ourselves in this crowd. How, how prone am I to be like the masses? How guilty am I at being what Jesus is going to later condemn with some of these things? We have to be willing to look at that. To set the stage, though, what's taking place here is that the crowds are building that more and more people are coming. We're, we're seeing only the recorded number of attendees is 5,000 men. That has something to do with the cultural records of the day and everything. But we're looking at perhaps 15, 20,000 people. Jesus is not having a hard time getting his message off the ground. His campaign, if we looked at it that way, is in full swing and it's, and it's working. So we come to those verses. Well, let's revisit some towards the end of the passage in verse 22. Where he says, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread um, after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves kept pursuing him. They didn't give up. They weren't done with what they were seeing and hearing. They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. I mean, they've abandoned whatever things they were doing. They've cleared their calendar and they said, he's going to be on the other side. Let's go find him. Let's go hear more. Let's go see more. So can't we say that this is working? This is what anybody that's that's starting off to to start a movement, if you will. This is what they would be asking for. Jesus has thousands. If all of a sudden we doubled the amount of people in this room, what would we instantly think? Something's happening at this church. They must be doing something right. It's, it's our material world fixation with external results and tangible responses to where we say something must be going right. We must be doing the right thing. Isn't this a, sing- a signal that his ministry is working? And it's not that growth doesn't matter. Anybody with a pulse that's doing the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ would like to see more people hear about the Lord Jesus, would like to see more people respond to this message of forgiveness and grace, and would love to see more people in attendance in a place like a local church growing in their discipleship and their fellowship with one another. So this isn't a message of let's chase the crowds away. It's not that crowds don't matter or that the, a response doesn't matter, but popular response is a lousy indicator of authenticity. Because they're there doesn't mean they're in it for the right reasons. So we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus answers them in verse 26. Truly, truly, 26, I think I meant to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs. In other words, not because you saw the power of what I can do and who I am but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Uh, way to capitalize on your momentum, Jesus. <laughs> what do they say? Whatever this expression means, I don't know, but look, looking a gift horse in the mouth or something like that. It just seems like a way to implode your campaign, doesn't it? They're coming. They're like, give us more. We really like what you're doing. Keep it up. And he says, ah, no, no, you're not really here for the right reasons. I'm not too interested. John had already given us a heads up that he his mindset was this way because back in chapter 2, verse 24, 
He says that Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, to the, the people in the crowds. Why? Because he knew what was in their hearts and minds. In other words, he wasn't overly enamored with the amount of people coming to hear because he was looking for authenticity and was finding it lacking. And so he didn't allow himself to be like, oh, God, Father, thank you for sending me. This is clearly taking off. He, he didn't let that kind of phony praise swell his head, to put it in human terms. We had uh, Dr. Chris with us last week, and of course that was, you know, we're still chewing on that and living on that. Every conversation I have with people, we're still reminiscing on some of the things that we said. But one of the points that I thought was so helpful and profound is that we need to be finding disciple makers, not just disciples. What we're going to see in this story is that you can get a crowd, you can get people to say, this is really interesting, or I'm really behind this, or hey, something's happening over there, I want to be a part of the movement, let's go see what happens. But a disciple maker is the one who's bringing those people to it, and they're the ones that are in it for the long haul. A disciple simply means just being a student, it can come and go. Class is over, I'm checking out, it's starting to cost me something, I don't really like where this is going, and they can drop. Searching for a material Jesus to only meet our material needs is going to leave us disappointed. And the reason for that is because he doesn't exist. Yes, Jesus is fully man. Yes, Jesus is fully God. But he didn't come simply to save us from our material poverty. He didn't come to save us from our material ailments and things, right? Because if we were to make that theological leap, then why would he stop feeding the people? Why would he stop healing the people? We, we have to look at why did Jesus do it at the time that he did with the people that he did, and why didn't it just keep going? He could have opened up shop and just had them. In fact, that's kind of what was going on now for about six months up until the time that this event happens, is that the crowds just kept coming and coming and coming. He sends the disciples out to do some great ministry. This is after John the Baptist has been executed and the disciples go out and they start getting such incredible results that the executioners of John the Baptist think he's come back from the dead because he was the one that was bringing in. Remember, we said hundreds of thousands of people and it was starting to happen again. This is taking off. But what was it taking off for? How many in that crowd were there for the material Jesus because of the fact, did you see what he just did with the bread? Versus, who's able to do this? Why is he here? How do I get to know him? So the point that, a couple of points that I want to make as we're doing this kind of overview before we get into these passages over the next couple of weeks is that our response to opportunity or our response to the difficulty or crises in our life will reveal which kingdom we are pursuing. Are we pursuing a material world, a material kingdom, because that's what we're comfortable with, or that's what we're expecting to give us satisfaction and payoff? Or are we pursuing this kingdom that Jesus came to introduce the people to? To um, illustrate perhaps one of the best responses recorded in scripture, let's go to the familiar story of Job. Now, even in a secular context, so many people are familiar with the character of Job because he tells a good moral lesson and, and his life is a good example that people can endure suffering and hardship and still look on the bright side of things and stuff. But there was a lot more going on with the story of Job that God was trying to demonstrate, and that's why it's recorded for us in Scripture. But you may recall that Job was... He's a, he's a wealthy individual, but more than just being uh, rich, he's actually got incredible integrity and he's well-loved and well-respected by the people around him. Things are going really well for a guy like Job. And, and the scripture even says that, uh, that he, he was complete, he was mature. We would, we would look at it and say he's nearly perfect. So it wouldn't surprise us then that Satan goes to God to challenge Keep, keeping in mind here that God doesn't care what happens. I mean, Satan doesn't care what happens to you or me. He wants to use us in the pond as an enemy, as a battle against his enemy, who is God. So Satan goes to God and says to him, does Job fear God or worship God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. It's going so well for him. Of course he would worship you. Now let's just stop there for a second. This is again why we have to examine the lies of Satan. 
in your experience, as you've come across people where everything seems to be going well and good and the money's flowing and the kids are perfect and all these kinds of things, do you think they're more prone to seek out God or less prone? It's, it's less, right? Even Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Again, not about the amount. It's about the security of it. It's about the pursuit of it and everything. So even Satan's twisting it by saying, well, of course he's going to worship you because you've made everything easy for him. But in our experience, right, that's not what we see all the time. There's something deeper going on with Job. So Satan says to him, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. That kind of means in a violent way. Discipline it. And he'll curse you to your face. So what does God do? He allows it to prove a point, to test Job, to go through all those things. He says, but you can't touch his person. You can't ail him physically. You can't end his life. You can do anything else you want, and we'll see what happens. So Satan comes in in a series of traumatic events that, as the story records, it sounds like it's all happening at once. His messengers keep coming to him and saying, okay, we lost this farm over here. We lost this business over here. Even worse, as we are over getting this report, I have to let you know that your whole family, all your children, everyone's been wiped out. I mean, the amount of calamity on one individual to me doesn't seem like it's ever been as, as, as uh, poignant or pregnant, if you will, as it has been for Job. So clearly, if someone's got the excuse, humanly speaking, to respond kind of negatively to the things that are going on in his life, it would be him. So what is his response? Again, staying in Job chapter 1. Verses 20 through 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, quite logically might I add, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be, now hear this, blessed be the name of the one who stripped me of everything that has provided for me. Blessed be the name of the one who has taken away everyone that I've loved. Blessed be the name of the one who's taken away everything in this physical world that I've become accustomed to. Blessed be him. Why? Because it was his to begin with. Anything I accumulated along the way, even the things that I loved the most, weren't from me. They were from him. It's his right to take him away. So Satan goes, mm, that didn't work so much. God's over there going, told you. So Satan says, okay, well, let's make it personal like it wasn't already. But we know how it can be, right? When we can talk a good game when things are external to us, but once things start affecting our health and our body and everything, it's harder for us, right, to, to have integrity. It's harder for us to keep our wits about us. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord after getting permission, and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Things continued to go terrible for Job. But fortunately for him, he still has his wife. Some of you that know the story, you, you picked up the heavy sarcasm of that statement. Do you still, this is, this is what she said, Job, I know it's been difficult and I really respect your integrity because you are going to knock this out of the park. No one's faced calamity like you have, but you've been preparing for this your whole life and I am going to be behind you a hundred percent. Sounds like a good wife, right? This is what she said. Are you still holding on to this thing you call your integrity? Like it counts for anything? Curse God and die. Get this, Job, check out. It's over. We had a good run. It's over. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job didn't sin with his lips. What is it that Job tapped into? What is it that he acknowledged? What is it that he knew that so many in this crowd that are chasing Jesus for more bread, as we'll see, what is it that he got that they didn't? What is it that he got that you and I often fall so woefully short of applying in our hearts? He understood that material obsession breeds nothing but emptiness. Job had a full heart because his heart wasn't consumed by all those things around him. Now, keep in mind his losses. I'm not just talking about his material wealth. He lost the things that all of us would say, I don't know how you'd recover from that. 
It's because he had a fullness of heart, a relationship with the giver of those things, as compared to the crowd's emptiness of stomach. As soon as they're hungry, they're like, hey, let's go find him. He gave us really good bread last time. They said to him a little bit later on beyond the text that we had read for us in verse 30 of John chapter 6. The crowd comes to Jesus and says, so what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And Jesus is like, felt like the one I just did on the other side of the sea. What work would you perform for us? And they're all, you can hear their stomachs going. They're like, ah, we get an idea. Just crazy thought, top of our head. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So more munchkins, anybody? What's going on here? They're, they're hinting, they're laying it on thick, like he didn't just provide them bread and, and what did he do? He called them out for it. He goes, you're, you're, you're craving something that was meant to only last for a short period of time. You're following me because of the bread, even though bread was never meant to last forever. Craving that which can't satisfy just becomes this endless cycle. We think it'll fill it, fill us up. We think drinking that salt water will quench our thirst. And what does it do? It makes us thirstier. Material obsession breeds emptiness. But Job also understood that an obsession with the bread giver is the only thing that will fill the soul. And Job's soul was full because his relationship with the bread giver, with the gift giver, was strong. So Jesus responds to this crowd that's following him saying, hey, uh, we got an idea. Why don't you do that whole manna trick thing? Let's get some more bread up in this place. So Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Moses, just a conduit. Moses just made the request. He just made the need known before the people that he was taking it to the Lord. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to him, now think back to the woman at the well in Samaria. Sir, give us this bread always. It's hard not to think that they're still thinking about physical bread, right? So verse 35, Jesus says to him, ah, (laughs) I've been trying to. It's me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's me. Uh, The things that I give you, the works that I perform, all those things are supposed to draw you to me. Uh, Kent Hughes, a commentator, gives me a nice, basic, simple, but very poignant summation of this by saying Jesus offers us himself. He doesn't promise us an easy life, but he does give us life and peace and strength during hardships and difficult times, as well as during wonderful moments of joy and victory. Jesus gives himself to us. The question you and I have to ask, doesn't it sound like it it, as a, as a minister of the gospel, here's one of the things I struggle with the most is I see the problems going on in people's lives. I've seen the stuff that they've created for themselves, and I've seen the things that they've fallen victim to, the things that have been done against them. And all I want to do is say, God, you've got to have a fix for this. You've got to have some step-by-step instructions that work them out of that hole. You've got to, and here it is, and it's on a cute little pamphlet, and it's good to go, and now you're all set. And and I I lack for that clear step of engagement because what God is doing through all of these things is he wants you to be drawn to him, the person of Jesus Christ, rather than the step-by-step fixes he can give us. And I I sometimes send people away feeling like I didn't really help them. Uh, yes, I pointed out the fact that you could be doing some great things in this. Yes, I pointed out that your your grace is sufficient for all of our needs. Yes, I, I just mentioned you, 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 you. But I don't know if they I don't know if they're really going to pursue you. I don't know what's going to happen in all this. And plus, you haven't told me exactly what you're going to do in their life. The question we all have to ask is, just like Job would have had to answer, is is he enough? even if all the other stuff gets taken away, or even if the stuff that hasn't arrived yet never arrives, is he enough? Now, I haven't had the experience of being a wealthy individual. 
but I've read enough and known a few and things like that. And I know that it's difficult for them to know who they can trust to be around them. The people they've come up with or their family or something like that. Now all of a sudden their world has changed. Now they got lots of money and they can't just go out to dinner with their buds anymore because the expectation is he's always going to pick up the tab. And they start thinking about like, are they around me for me or are they around for the things that I can provide? And it becomes this real dangerous place for those with wealth to start, uh, try not to get into their own head and start to learn how to love and reach out to people regardless of what they might want for them. But don't you think Jesus being the wealthiest individual that's ever walked this earth would also struggle with that same thing? If he wasn't God, don't you think that'd be a major identity crisis? But fortunately for you and me, he came knowing that that gap would exist, that we would see him for the goodies that he could provide and that he would continue to press and persist until he established real relationship with those that would truly follow him. This is why the response to the opportunities that come that way, or even like Job, the, uh, the response to crisis that happens to us reveals the kingdom that we're pursuing. It reveals the relationship that we're pursuing. The second point I think is important for us to camp on for a minute. We're 20. Saying. Is how are we going to find this fulfillment in Christ? What is the key? And the key is simply trusting him more. Now we've already talked about Job, which is one of the more common and famous places in scripture to go to make some of these points. And I want to go to sort of the, the New Testament equivalent, if you will, to that kind of common passage in Matthew 6. Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And this is actually happening between, see if I can say this without sounding really confusing. So we're reading in John, one of the gospel records. We finish chapter 5, and as we begin chapter 6, there's that gap of about six months that are happening between those chapters. In that time, a lot of the things that the other gospel writers share with us is what's going on. So even the most incredible piece of teaching on the kingdom of God arriving on earth called the Sermon on the Mount has taken place between uh, what Jesus was doing in chapter 5 and then the time where the bread miracle happens. And that sermon is recorded for us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We zero in on chapter 6 to extract just a couple pieces of this sermon. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's jump down to verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Now, those of you that know your scriptures, those of you that have been doing church for a long time, there's a typical reaction whenever we hear passages like this. We have a tendency, whether inside or on the outside, kind of nod our head and just be like, I needed to hear that. You know, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Like, I got away from that this week. Or I can think of that moment on Tuesday where I replaced uh, the kingdom of God for the kingdom of material and stuff like that. And so there's this kind of resetting uh, thing that happens for us or maybe a little bit deeper convicting that says, boy, I've really wandered away from this. When you said, seek first the kingdom of God is righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. I've said, boy, that's been one of my life verses and I've gotten away from that. I haven't been seeking his kingdom first. What we have a tendency to do when we're reminded by these things, we have a tendency to think, so what can I do more to crank that volume up more and start to become more dedicated to this idea of seeking the kingdom of God first? And that's a right reaction. And I know it sounded like I was about to pick on that, but Paul talks to, talks to us about um, uh, working hard and applying ourselves. James talks to us about working out our salvation that's been given to us as an example of our faith. We see all through the scriptures that the Christian life is effort, that we are building towards something. But oftentimes our own inflated sense of what we can do more to get less material kingdom minded and more godly minded sort of falls flat on its face. And then a couple weeks later, we're like, Oh, I forgot that verse again. Why did I get away from that? I think it's important to be reminded. That this isn't just about trying harder. 
in the Christian life. The gospel of God's grace rescues us from working harder to earn that which he already promised to provide. If we're pursuing a relationship with Jesus, isn't there something in our relationships we're supposed to do and work at, right? So we get that. We're like, okay, I can't expect this relationship to end well or to go well or to last forever if I don't put some effort in. But there's also a part of a relationship that's supposed to be about being together, about enjoying one another, about about just existing together. And sometimes we forget that. We think that it's all all one-sided, like God's only happy with me when I'm working hard enough to prove it. So it's not just about trying harder. This is about the 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 the, the God of creation descending down to us, condescending down to us and bringing us his work and suffering for us and rescuing us from ourselves. It's also not about asceticism, which is just that kind of a fancy way of saying, you know, proving I'm holy enough, proving I really mean it. The ascetics used to, you know, whip their backs and flog themselves and starve yourself to prove I'm so dedicated to the Lord and everything. The Christian life in relationship with this good God isn't about us just proving to God, see, I'm holy. You can count on me. See, I'm trying hard. I'll go without anything. We get these things out of balance. It's our relationship to the material world is what matters most to God, not how much of it we have. Anybody in any economic spectrum around this globe, from the richest to the poorest, can read this and still have a sense of conviction or challenge from it because the principle here is that what I'm banking on to rescue me in my life or to satisfy me in my life, if it's anything outside of him, it's falling short. It's an endless pursuit. What materialism does, and that's not just materials, but it's our obsession with it, our our banking on it. What materialism does is it robs us of the simple pleasures of material things. Materialism means we lack balance on it or we expect it to to deliver us from trouble or to provide some kind of stability for us. I love these little mini books that we have out there. Remember, I just got done saying it's not in a pamphlet. Kind of is. Um, out in our entryway, we have a display of a lot of these kinds of titles, and, and we're really trying to encourage you guys, take these. If you, The title is usually trying to be very applicable to a specific topic, and we find these to be extremely biblical and, and very, very practical. And so as I was reading this one, uh, looking for some uh, gold nuggets for our time this morning, David Paulison, one of the authors, uh, never disappoints. And in this particular book called Breaking the Addictive Cycle, after clarifying the difference between blatant sinful pleasures, because sometimes when we talk about like moderation and being able to enjoy, we sometimes let that stretch over to the things that God has clearly condemned and said, no amount of this is healthy or good for you. But after clarifying that there are some of those sinful pleasures that you just can't even have in moderation, he clarifies between those and that God has put on this earth to be enjoyed. This is what he says. The lesser innocent pleasures come because of the greatest pleasure God himself is in his rightful place. Doesn't that just sound refreshing? Don't we wrestle with guilt so much and we try to figure out how much is too much and how much should I be sacrificing everything? But if God's in his rightful place, doesn't that just kind of go like, I need to get there first. Innocent pleasures don't pretend to save you or protect you. They don't promise you meaning and identity in life. They don't take life's fragility, pain, frustration, disappointment, and uncertainty and wash them away. They're not the giver of every good and perfect gift. They're just gifts you enjoy. They're innocent because they don't pretend to be anything more. Moderation, in fact, I think the Apostle Paul teaches this very well. Moderation is freeing and enjoyable while obsession cancels pleasure in moderation. The reason why we don't think that moderation is possible is because we get too wrapped around the axle that this thing, whatever we're supposed to be okay with or like or something, becomes our be-all, end-all. So it isn't about just asceticism and putting everything away that might bring an ounce of pleasure or something. It's about something else. It's about putting the material in subjection to Jesus. Now, last week, we were challenged along these lines. We were challenged with Dr. Chris's um, presentation of a family that he, his heart was heavy on because one of his um, young mentors in the ministry 
overseas and in a very difficult place. And, and I was even reminded in my prayer group with the guys that he actually was carrying some of the burden of feeling responsible of telling this guy, this is the location you need to go. And in that location, he gets COVID and dies, leaving a young wife and two young children behind. And Dr. Chris came to us and said, uh, he said to me kind of privately, Pastor Brent, if you wouldn't mind, you know, if you want to, anything that comes in to support me, I'm making sure she gets it. We need to relocate her. Um, it's, she's in a vulnerable place without her husband there. She'll be taken advantage of. It's just not pretty there. We got to get her out of there. And so I said, yeah, I'll mention it to our people. And you know me, I'm not like big on the hard sell and everything. And, and in visiting that point, it's, it's about putting the material in subjection to Jesus. This church did that on the fly and in, in the moment, raising over $6,000 to help this woman get to where she needed to be. This is what happens when we trust that the Lord's got provision over uh, or, or um, authority over our material. It's just his. Naked I came into this world and naked I'll go out. So in conclusion, what we need to be thinking about here, I believe, is that you and I need to practice what we can give to others rather than take from them. We wake up in a material world. We we have only learned how to survive in a material world. And this whole thing about the kingdom of God coming to us and introducing to us a spiritual kingdom beyond what we can see is still foreign to us and we're practicing His spirit comes in and gives us new eyes to see it and new resources to be able to live in it. But how to do this, it's just not automatic, is it? I love this. I'm probably a broken record with this, but I love this thing of like when you're feeling particularly selfish or you're feeling like the world's against you and you're driving around kind of half, you know, angry driving and stuff like that. Like everyone's against me. Nothing's going right. Go through a drive through and pay for the person behind you. It's a simple little thing, and the person behind you doesn't even know you did it. Shreda, the woman over that we just sent all the money to, who has found a new location and they're transporting her now, she doesn't know your names. She would like to know your names, I'm sure. She would like to thank you. But it isn't about that, isn't it? It's about us practicing letting go of this physical kingdom. Oh, I have this, and it's starting to get a hold of me. How do I let it go? Here, can you use this? Can you take it? If you're coming here new and you're hearing money talk two weeks in a row at faith, please, please, please trust me when I say this is very, very rare that we talk about these things. Now, almost to a fault, if I can be honest with you, I think that the reason why Jesus taught on this so much is because he knew, knew how much it grips our hearts. We obsess about the money we don't have. We have a hard time letting go of the money we do have. And, and so we've got to be honest to have this conversation, not just because the church has bills it needs to pay or not because somebody over in the Middle East needs rescuing or something like that. Those things are the end result of those things. But you and I are just obsessed with physical world, aren't we? I'm writing a message this week and my mind is on, oh, I wonder if I can afford this. I wonder if that's going to happen. I wonder if that's going to pay off. The Lord's going, do you hear yourself? Did you see what you put on? The- I know, but I'm trapped here too. It's growth and grace. We need to practice what we can give to others rather than waking up thinking, what's the world going to give me today? And as soon as it's out of sorts, I'm angry at the world. Secondly, I think that we need to resist the thought that you and I can abandon a material kingdom obsession by ourselves. You will not get any further if you just sit in isolation this morning and be like, okay, I've made up my mind. Yep, I even agree with what the pastor said and stuff like that. For once, he made a little bit of sense. So I'm going to do this thing today, but I'm not going to share it with anybody. I'm not going to share this Christian life with anybody. I can do this in isolation. And no, you can't. This is why we're getting ready to uh, baptize people out on our front lawn. We're doing this as a celebration of family and community. We want everybody in the church to witness what the Lord is doing as growth in people's lives. Those people getting in and out of that tank need to know that you're going to walk this life with them. There's community in that. If you're dragging your feet on baptism, please don't do that. You're stressing out my assistant pastor. He's got to give you some tips and education and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, I'm going to decide that day. Can't do it. I know it doesn't sound very biblical, right? Because they all just went like, oh, I follow and get in the water. Well, we got logistics and it's a different culture, different day. 
Jesus didn't have to set up the video camera and record because everyone was like, I'm too embarrassed to get in front of people. I'm too shy. They knew it was life and death back then. That was, I'm sorry, but listen. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I had, back in my early days of this church, we were trying to help people with baptism, and I had a woman asking me, when are we doing it? And when I said the date, she said, I can't. I have a built-in hair appointment, then I can't do it. So it's hard for me to erase the memory of how we approach these things about, like, you know, following the Savior of the world. So, all right, that's snarky, and I'm done. Because I've been there, too. I've said very similarly embarrassing things. I'm not just picking on her. It's who we are. So resist the thought that you can abandon a material kingdom session alone. We put on full display for you the retreats that we have for our men and women. And these are more than just ways to keep the saints busy or to provide for them. Hey, you got to have some payoff for belonging to this church. Let's go and put them in a campground and let them eat good food. This is about growth. All of these ministry focus, the leaders that you have leading our men and our women are all thinking about what's the next right step, what's the progress of your discipleship to grow more in this relationship with Jesus Christ. And so those retreats are built to encourage that and to keep that momentum going. And for the guys especially, I know uh, you know my wife's very involved with women's ministry and all the ladies that are there with, under Laura Corette's direction and everything, I mean, they are just getting the job done. Every time I turn around, there's another great idea and they're learning how to implement it. And our ladies, there's just a buzz. There's a connection. There's something really happening there. And so their retreat's going to be knocked out of the park. It's going to be incredible. But they didn't invite me to that. And I don't know Linda Seacrest McDowell as well as I know about the speaker coming for the men. So don't think I'm not promoting what they do as well. But I am I am fired up about what we're doing with the men. For several years, I've been asking Jeff and Steve, hey, do you think we can get Dave McIntyre to come? And it's not because Dave McIntyre is some world-renowned speaker. Um, I stumbled across Dave McIntyre while I was sick on the couch. Do we have time for this? Can I give you a Brent personal story for like three to... 25 minutes. Um, uh, and I couldn't go anywhere. And so I was pulling up things on the DVR and I came across this show called Alone. And I was like, oh, I don't know anything about it. I'm not much of a, I, I don't know how to survive in the wilderness. So those things don't interest me. I can hardly hold the fish that I catch. Pastor Gary will tell you, I caught fish the other day. I didn't want to touch the scales. How am I going to survive up there? And, um, I hope you guys appreciate my vulnerability. This isn't easy to be this wimpy in front of you. Um, and, uh, I, so I see this show called Alone. I'm like, well, I'm not much into these survival shows and everything, but the concept they explained it was really intriguing to me. They're dropping these people off in the middle of nowhere in frigid conditions with no camera crew and 10 items to survive with and all this kind of stuff. And the only getting out with a little red button that says, uh, a bear's attacking me, come get me. And they're like, okay, we'll be there in two hours after we get the helicopter in and the boat over in the, when they say alone in the show, they mean alone. And in season two, I saw this really humble and very broken, broken man called Dave McIntyre, who was a missionary for a lot of years and went through a real personal tragedy, a real loss in his life. And you could sense that not just for him, but for his adult children and everything, they needed dad to get out and try this thing because he was a survivalist. He learned a lot of technique and he kind of knew what he was doing, but, but he needed some kind of like, you need a win, dad. You need something. To, and, and most people don't make it. There's like a big money prize at the end and they last like 70, 80 days out in Vancouver in the middle of snow and just losing 30, 40 pounds. It's ridiculously grinding. And uh, spoiler alert, you know, we've been advertising it. So if you haven't been paying attention, this is on you. But Dave wins. And uh, the way he won and the way his reaction to winning, it just melted my heart. I was like, we got to get this guy. We got to get to know him. And yeah, he's manly and he's going to help us. He's going to speak to our, you know, interest in those things. But it's the it's the brokenness of Dave McIntyre and the kingdom that he lives for uh, is on full display. So, guys, listen, we're you know, we've got probably 150 to 200 men still connected with this ministry. And we're kind of doing cartwheels that we got 40, 50, maybe 60 guys coming. That's exciting. And I'm thinking to myself, we could double that number. Steve's having a heart palpitation going, I didn't book that many, but let's, let's push the booking to the brink and let's get this done because we're going to grow together as men. 
I think I heard a lot of female clapping in there. So there's a lot of support, a lot of support, right? Guys, we just want to be our girl's hero. This is one way to get there. Lastly, I'd say to ask Jesus to use your next response to difficulty for his purpose. How many of you think that you've had your last bad experience in life? Whatever you just survived there, I finally did it. The rest is smooth sailing. You're not done, are you? So you've got many more opportunities. Whatever the next thing that happens to you, what's your response going to be? Have you thought ahead of time and said something like probably Job had to say over and over and over again in order to practice letting go of this earthly kingdom? Like, Lord, whatever the next thing is, I want my response to it to be so beneficial to the kingdom, to be so beneficial to my smaller network of brothers and sisters who are watching me go through this. I pray that it's for your use and for your glory and for their benefit. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's almost like saying, bring it on. And what's the thing we always say? Don't ever pray for patience because then turmoil will come. Let's let go of all these little fear things about giving the Lord our lives and say, Lord, it's all yours anyway. Naked I came into this world. Naked I'm going out. The next thing that happens to me, I give you my response. Use it for your glory and your will. This is what we're called to. This is the opportunity that we have to do this together and not in isolation. Would you please stand? Let's pray together. Let's get our time prepared for a closing out in worship. Lord, I want to thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the story that we're about to get into. But I thank you, Lord, for uh, giving us the picture of the people that are just like us. Help us to identify with this, but help us all to, also to be deeply convicted by how much more like you we need to be. It's one thing to relate to the failures and the frustrations of other people, Lord, but you gave us these examples so that we would take on your image and grow in your likeness. So surrender us to that call, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord. I thank you every day, Lord, for the beauty and the, and the celebration and the togetherness of this assembly. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here in our little uh, 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 postage stamp area of the world here in Waterville. We pray, Lord, that we would bring more into the fold, that we would see more people come to a saving knowledge of you. Lord, we give you our lives as worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.